Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, September 26th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Our producer is Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, one big supply chain security issue starting to get more attention. Plus, got an airport? Customs and Border Protection is available for hire. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, artificial intelligence is one of the hottest topics in federal technology circles these days. And one federal executive who helps oversee the Technology Modernization Fund wants to see agencies embrace AI going forward. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me now. Justin, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Eric? I'm very well as well. So what might we see out of the TMF when it comes to artificial intelligence? Yeah, we have seen the TMF invest $750 million in 45 projects across 27 federal agencies so far. Most of those have focused in areas like cybersecurity, zero trust, and customer experience is one of the more recent trends as well. But Sheena Burrell, the chief information officer at the National Archives and Records Administration, wants to see agencies start to propose more AI projects. She is a, one of the board members on the seven-member TMF board that provides funding recommendations and actually monitors the progress of projects. And during an event last week to celebrate the TMF hosted by the Alliance for Digital Innovation, Burrell talked about what she'd like to see out of AI and automation projects going forward. One of the things that I would love to be able to see more and just as a federal government to see is more artificial intelligence, robotic process automation, machine learning. Uh, as you have more generative AI that you know the American people are really excited about, they're going to want to see that in uh, the applications that they they interface with with the government. And I would love to be able to see more of those type of projects that come in. And again, that's Sheena Burrell, CIO at the National Archives and a member of the TMF board. And one thing she added is that these AI projects could have something of a user experience, customer experience, experience type angle. Of course, you know, generative AI and chatbots and things like that certainly could see the intersection there with what the federal government does as far as services and websites and things like that. Yeah, well, she may get her wish because this comes as federal agencies are really starting to consider different AI projects and uses, right? Yeah, the uh, so agencies are really looking at this across the board and the Office of Management and Budget. We reported uh last month, earlier this month, rather, is circulating draft AI guidance that will tell agencies how to use and manage the technology. The Department of Homeland Security, for instance, just appointed a CIO, its CIO, to serve as its first chief AI officer. And DHS is using AI to do things like tracking fentanyl shipments and investigating child exploitation crimes and things like that. So there's a whole host of potential use cases. Other agencies are looking at how to use AI for things like processing FOIA requests and other big backlog type projects. And and then, as I mentioned, you know, chatbots using generative AI are, are starting to come out as well. And the government uses chatbots. So you could certainly see this, you know, coming out in a whole different range of areas that the government provides services and, and does things in. 
And on the other side, there are some folks, though, that are saying, well, all right, let's take a breather here because there are some efforts to potentially rein in the use of AI in government. Where do those currently stand? Yeah, so Congress is, of course, looking at, you know, a lot of different AI related legislation. And in the Senate, uh, Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee Chairman Gary Peters is really spearheading legislation that looks at how the government approaches AI specifically. He and others have proposed legislation that would require agencies to notify individuals when they are interacting with or subject to decisions made using AI or other automated systems. And it would also require agencies to set up an appeals process that ensures there is human review of any AI-generated decisions. Peters has also proposed the AI Leadership Training Act, that would ensure federal managers across the board actually understand how AI works. So, you know, earlier this month that the committee held a hearing about AI, Peters applauded how agencies are exploring AI, but said they also need to make sure they avoid any unintended or harmful consequences. These guardrails are more important than ever. Federal agencies are inundated with sales pitches and technology demos promising the next big thing. And while the federal government must be forward-thinking, we also have to be cautious in procuring these new tools. And we must continue to work uh, past the initial purchase, testing, and fine-tuning our models to ensure that they are effectively serving the American people. And again, that's Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee Chairman Gary Peters talking about how agencies should be approaching AI. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Now, we did start this whole conversation out talking about the TMF. That's the Technology Modernization Fund. Congress is now considering some changes to how the payments work with the TMF. What are officials saying about that issue? Yeah, you know, the House Oversight and Accountability Committee last week uh, advanced the Modernizing Government Technology Reform Act. It would extend the TMF board through 2030. But it would also make some changes uh, to tighten up how the program works. It would uh, specifically eliminate OMB's ability to provide agencies with a waiver that would give them more than five years to repay TMF loans. And it would also require the General Services Administration, which manages the TMF, to get money back from agencies to keep the fund operational through 2030. So, of course, the American Rescue uh, Act gave some agencies more flexibility in how they can repay funds to the TMF. And we saw that that actually opened up how agencies started using the TMF a little bit. Sheena Burrell, the CIO at NARA, who we heard from earlier, talked about how that repayment flexibility has really enticed more agencies to seek investment from the fund. There were a lot of agencies that were very nervous to take advantage of the TMF because of the repayment. And how would they pay the money back? And when would the money need to be paid back? I think one of the big things that I'm seeing right now, as more people or more agencies are making use of the TMF and the flexible repayment option, we're seeing more people who want to take advantage of that. And again, that's Sheena Burrell, the CIO at the National Archives and a board member of the TMF. As she said, the TMF is, you know, seeing more agencies getting creative with repayment options. So it will be interesting to see how that legislation in the House moves forward. And if it passes, whether it has an effect on how agencies look to use the TMF to fund different technology projects. All right. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thank you so much, as always. 
All right. You're welcome, Eric. And you can find more of Justin's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, got an airport? Customs and Border Protection is available for hire. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Companies operating at U.S. airports sometimes need extra help in processing inbound international passengers or cargo. Customs and Border Protection will provide that help as a service for which the agency receives reimbursement. In fact, CBP's Office of Field Operations recently signed up with several dozen companies. For how this program works, we turn to the director of the Alternative Funding Division, Ryan Flanagan, who spoke to Federal Drive host Tom Temin. How does this work? Because isn't CBP already having a presence where there might be inbound cargo from overseas or passengers overseas? So how does this work? Where are you not, but they need you? So the reimbursable program, services program, enables partnerships between CBP and private sector or government entities, allowing CBP to provide additional inspection services on a reimbursable basis upon the voluntary request of our stakeholders. So these services are above and beyond what we are able to perform under CBP's existing budget and is intended to be an augmentation of any existing services provided at a desired location for our stakeholders. Now, there are, I think, 39 companies that recently signed up with you to do this at various airports throughout the country. Some I've never even heard of, but I guess cargo must maybe come in from Canada or something to them. And what are those companies now doing And also, what is CBP doing there? And then if they have signed up for reimbursable services, do you add people and hours and man hours to those particular locations? It really depends on the stakeholder needs. So we see a variety of utilization under the program. It could be to drive down passenger wait times at a given port of entry. It could be to provide services maybe outside of the hours of operation at a port of entry for program stakeholders. It essentially allows the program stakeholders to determine where they would like to leverage an augmentation of the existing services that we can provide to them in order to meet their own respective businesses' needs. Because some of these are large, like Adobe Inc. is at Los Angeles International Airport, Portland International, Kona, uh, Oakland, San Jose, big West Coast airports, lots of activity going on. But then there's one for Butler Aviation, I've heard of them, doing business as the Apex Jet Center at Huma Terabon Airport. I don't even know where that is, but <laughs> what what's going on at a place like that? Sure. So that's down in Louisiana. And, and the thing is, of course, we don't discriminate. So we have program stakeholders that are in all environments at ports of entry of all different shapes and sizes. And so really it just comes down to the applicant and stakeholders needs versus what CBP could potentially provide them under our appropriated budget. So yes, again, in all modes, it really comes down to what that stakeholder is looking for. We'll make a determination if that's something that we can actually provide under our existing budget, or if it's something that may warrant some reimbursable services. And so the good thing about the program, again, is that there's no minimum threshold of services that a stakeholder needs to request during a given year to maintain the partnership. So really, they have that as another tool in their toolbox if they want to leverage reimbursable services to obtain the services that they need for their respective company. And these are services that only CBP can legally perform? Correct. So these are for all CBP services in all modes, land, sea, air, rail wherever is needed. 
Right. So we know what CBP does with respect to people flying in. What are some of the other services, such as verification of what's in the cargo, that type of thing? Correct. So, you know, again, we're doing everything that we can to meet the increased demand of travel and trade at all of our ports of entry, which is a key component to CBP's mission. And so to your point, it may be a situation in which a, a program stakeholder is looking to get cargo processed and off the docks outside of the hours of operation at our port of entry. So if that's something that's operationally feasible for CBP, uh, we would engage with that stakeholder to map out the scope of services that could be provided there, let's say at a seaport. Similarly speaking, you know, in, in the air environment, if there's an increased need let's say by a uh, program stakeholder for services, be it to drive down wait times during core hours of operation, they can leverage RSP for that. If they would like to get some processing outside of the core hours of operation, that's something that if it is operationally feasible for CBP, then we'll take that into account and make a determination if we can perform those services for them. So one thing I would say about that again, is that it's truly a partnership in that once we enter into an agreement with the program stakeholder, we will outline the scope of services that CBP may be willing to accommodate in the form of a memorandum of understanding. And that's something that'll dictate, you know, just the cadence of any engagement between both parties to ensure that, you know, essentially both sides' respective needs are met as part of the partnership. We're speaking with Ryan Flanagan. He's director of the Alternative Funding Programs Division, and that's part of the Office of Field Operations at CBP. And what kind of statutory or authority do you have? How did you obtain that CBP in order to have this? It's unusual for federal agencies to offer services for a fee to private entities in this manner, I think, isn't it? It is. It is. But uh, the origins of the program date back to 2013, you know, when record increases in, in passenger and cargo volumes were outpacing CBP's personnel resources. So Congress enacted at that time the Consolidated and Further Continuing Appropriations Act, in which Section 560 permitted CBP to enter into five total agreements for customs and immigration services only within port of entry boundaries. So given the popularity of the program at that time and the demand from other private sector and government entities, the reimbursable authority has evolved in terms of relaxing limitations in the scope of services that we could provide. So in particular, under Section 41 of the Cross-Border Trade Enhancement Act of 2016, Essentially, CBP's reimbursable authority evolved in terms of relaxing the limitations and the scope of services that we could provide. So in particular, there's now no limitation in the number of agreements we can enter into. The stakeholder agreements don't expire. Agricultural processing is now permitted, and CBP may provide services not only at ports of entry, but any CBP facility or any location which CBP would be willing to provide services. It was essentially a recognition by Congress that CBP, we're doing everything that we can to meet the increased demand of travel and trade at our ports of entry. But this is an authority that allows us to bridge that gap between what we're able to do under our existing budgets and meet the demand of uh, the trade community. Yeah, I wonder about that, just to play devil's advocate, because Congress could also say, golly, we've got this demand, you know, Air France is landing in SeaTac and disgorging a bunch of cranky people out of its Dreamliner that have been in the air for 15 hours. Why not just enlarge CBP so that it can meet the mission that the nation actually has? So, no, that's a that's a great question. And the intent of this program is not to impact uh, CBP's continued efforts to increase our staffing resources. If anything, this, this, again, is just to bridge that gap 
to where until we can get those resources in place, it gives our program stakeholders the opportunity to perhaps obtain CBP services at a desired location. Wow. And do you have metrics on how much revenue this brings to CBP in a given year and how many man hours of CBP staff? Because it sounds like there might be people you'd have to pay overtime. Say, would you like to stick around for another shift? Only this time it's on Air France or on, you know, Butler Aviation. That's correct. So operational feasibility concerns are always taken into account, and, and the local port director has operational autonomy in determining whether or not a request for these services is feasible. And so that's something that they'll hash out with the program stakeholder, be it Air France or any one of our other 374 program stakeholders that uh, impact over 239 ports of entry from Saipan to San Juan. And so to your point, it's a situation where if it's not operationally feasible for CBP, we would deny a request, but that's something that would be outlined with the program stakeholder prior to a request for services and a memorandum of understanding, which dictates the scope of services locally. How much do you take in a year so far? What I can tell you in terms of overall usage under the programs is that we've provided over 1.3 million hours of services from over 483,000 CBP officer assignments. And with that, we processed over 19 million travelers and over 2.1 million personal and commercial vehicles under the program. And specifically at the seaports of entry, the program has contributed to nearly 2 million additional agriculture and radiation portal monitor inspections as well. A lot of usage under the program. That's something that does break it out into three categories with our program stakeholders. We've got those stakeholders that request services you know, on a regular basis, those that request services on an ad hoc basis, and then lastly, they have yet to request any services, understanding that the agreements don't expire and they can use this as another tool in their toolbox if they so choose. And is there an average hourly rate for CBP? I guess it depends on how many people are there, but like per person, per hour? That is something that is really tied to, to your point, the number of officers that would be required to provide the requested services. And it's actually tied to the specific salaries and benefits of the officers that would come out to provide those services. But one thing that we do with our interested parties is that prior to entering into an agreement, we'll go over general estimates of what costs could potentially look like for that stakeholder. And so that they were very transparent with that, you know, with the program stakeholder, and they have a general sense of what the cost could look like prior to submitting a formal request. And so one thing on that note is that we operate, you know, especially for our U.S. taxpayers through appropriated budget, we operate under least cost principles when it comes to allocating overtime to our officers. When overtime is assigned to our officers, we do it obviously in a way that is at the lowest cost to the federal government and in turn our taxpayers. And what we do is we extend that same courtesy to program stakeholders under RSP when it comes to assigning overtime services so that RSP stakeholders have that confidence that the officers that are coming out at the time they've requested to provide services Ryan Flanagan is director of the Alternative Funding Division, part of the Office of Field Operations at Customs and Border Protection, speaking there with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Fly with the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
Still to come on Federal News Network, a precarious situation that contractors have found themselves in more and more recently. But first, one big supply chain security issue starting to get more attention. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. The CHIPS Act shoveled billions of taxpayer dollars to the microelectronics industry. One reason for making more circuits domestically is greater cybersecurity and supply assurance. Now a sort of overlooked piece of the electronic supply chain is gaining attention in Congress. The boards the chips are mounted on. Federal Drive host Tom Temin got more from the executive director of the Printed Circuit Board Association of America, David Schild. And I guess we spoke quite a number of months ago about the need for the supply chain and cyber assurance of the substrate that is the backbone of all electronics. What is the new development and what's going on on Capitol Hill? A lot of great progress since the last time we spoke. In March, President-designated printed circuit boards and integrated circuit substrates as a critical federal technology under the Defense Production Act. And as you probably know, we've been hearing a lot about that act in, in recent years. We, we used it during COVID to make ventilators a lot faster. Uh, that designation is very important because it drops a lot of red tape and frees up the government to move much more quickly to acquire American-made printed circuit boards and integrated circuit substrates. So that's tremendous progress. Also, a lot going on on Capitol Hill. The National Defense Authorization Act, once again, pushing the Pentagon to secure its microelectronics supply chains, especially in the commercial off-the-shelf space, which is very important. And then we've got standalone legislation, a sort of our version of the CHIPS Act, which is moving forward to hopefully shore up this critical industry. And uh, as we say, chips don't float. All these wonderful semiconductors that we're going to manufacture in the United States need integrated circuit substrates and boards to do their jobs. We think that we should make the entire technology stack right here in America. And there is a cybersecurity issue factor to this. Is that fair to say? Because something could be embedded in a circuit board. These are not simple structures and they're multi-layer and there's interconnection among the layers. Someone could slip a tiny chip into a circuit board even, I imagine. It's a point of great concern for officials throughout the national security establishment that we have a trusted microelectronics supply chain. And of course, as we have pushed more and more production and research and development and innovation overseas, I think it's introduced some risk that we otherwise would not tolerate in our supply chains. And so, yeah, being able to say that we know where these things are manufactured, we know who's doing the manufacturing, it's certainly important for anybody who's in federal acquisition. I would think, you know, just from a physical standpoint, someone could add a trace that wasn't in the original design that could create a backdoor to monitor. There's all kinds of ways of getting into what's going on in a circuit other than just hacking it from the signal that's output. And so if you could adjust that output signal without the knowledge of the person that built the board, built the circuit in these embedded systems, then you could do a lot of damage on the cyber front. Boards are highly engineered pieces of technology. Far from being simple green plastic, we're actually talking about a complex laminate of woven glass, precious metals like gold, copper, certainly any number of specialty chemical formulations. And there's a lot of engineering at a very small nanometer level even that goes into production. So you're absolutely right. It would be difficult to look at a board and say with any degree of surety, we know that this is something that's safe for the end user, which is, again, why we want to bring back production. We've fallen off a cliff in terms of where we used to be. At one time, 30% of printed circuit boards were made in the United States. That was 2,200 companies. Today, it's less than 150 companies. And when that constitutes only 4% of global market share. So the U.S. that invented this technology no longer owns production of it or even controls a sizable percentage of the portfolio. 
And there's circuit boards in their circuit boards. I mean, the main card in a high-end, say, router, you know, is an extremely complicated piece. But then there's also circuit boards that go into maybe a hearing aid, a little tiny thing with only a couple of layers and, you know, one chip on it, this type of thing. So the question is, what is the distribution by technology of origin of manufacture? So that's a great point. Everything from F-150s to F-35s is going to have a printed circuit board. Absolutely. If electricity is running through it today and you know your listeners can look around their home or office and printed circuit boards are everywhere. They're a ubiquitous piece of technology. But certainly we are not pushing for the federal government to bring back the boards that you would find inside uh, dishwashers and garage door openers and thermostats. At a very large scale in the commercial marketplace, what are simpler technologies are going to stay in overseas production. Market forces have, have seen to that. But we think in high-tech spaces like banking, critical infrastructure, certainly the energy grid, medical devices. Certainly those are places, I think, where we need to have more production in the United States. And you think about everything outside of traditional defense applications that depends on trusted microelectronics, right? The ability for us to do our banking, the ability for the lights to stay on, certainly everything that's happening in decarbonization, EV chargers, electric vehicles, all of these things are dependent on PCBs and substrates. I think it makes sense to know that we control a sizable portion of that supply chain. And by the way, garage doors, they're on the internet now too these days. Absolutely. We're speaking with David Schild. He's executive director of the Printed Circuit Board Association of America. And for the military or anyone that, or contractors, you know, that have critical circuitry, there's another cyber danger, and that is if the board is not only made but stuffed overseas in the final production assembly situation, the wave soldering gear, that means the critical circuits themselves have to be shipped to where the boards are assembled and come back, which is another vulnerability. Yes, supply chain resiliency has been getting so much attention lately, right? Along with this idea of de-risking and decoupling from foreign sourcing. And you saw throughout the National Defense Authorization Act, a lot of language talking about prevention of foreign ownership and control and influence over our critical supply chains. If you say we're going to make new semiconductors in places like Ohio and Arizona, I don't think that the vision is that those products will then have to get shipped across an ocean for the next part of the ecosystem, the next part of the stack, to then come back to the United States, perhaps for final assembly and on to store shelves or end users. I think that's not the vision that the administration and Congress are seeking. Manufacturing nodes, regional hubs, that's what you hear Secretary Raimondo talking about. I think those are really the future. All right. And then there's legislation, which has been in the House a couple of times. Now your bill is back in. It's called H.R. 3249, Protecting Circuit Boards and Substrates. What's the backing of it? And what's the real chances of anything happening this session? Because, you know, they've got a few other things ahead of that. It's a challenging time for anyone who's trying to move policy forward in Washington. But I will say that I think the wind is at our back in terms of congressional focus on the need to make more things here in America and certainly confront the pacing threat that's out there from a national security perspective. The PCBs Act is very much focused on two things, a direct amount of support for our industry in the same way that the CHIPS Act supported the semiconductor industry so that we can hire new workers, so that we can break ground on new facilities, buy the critical tooling that's necessary to produce PCBs. I think more importantly, a tax credit for people buying printed circuit boards accomplishes what so many VPs of ops or heads of supply chain want to do right now. They want to diversify their supply chains. They want to de-risk. They want to perhaps de-emphasize their dependence on Asia. But how do they do that when the bottom line doesn't support those moves? A tax credit to say when you buy American, we're going to bring these costs into a competitive position. We think that builds the demand signal that's necessary to truly spur a manufacturing surge. 
And how labor intensive are high end board making? I mean, a lot of this is automated, which means the more things are automated, the less they need to be in China or Southeast Asia. Automation is increasingly a part of our business, but I will tell you, if you walk through a PCV facility, it's a very fascinating mix of old school and new school manufacturing. You see a lot of chemical processes to do the etching work, to layer and plate the copper that we need, of mm-hmm. course, to build PCBs. And at the same time, you have clean rooms and folks in you know the bunny suits doing you know very small and very precise work to lay down critical pathways and actually make the boards work. And I'm so glad you talk about this because I was at a facility recently and we have trained technicians doing very visual inspections of these boards because we can't yet teach a computer or a camera to make sure that those connections are reliable in the same way that a highly trained technician in the human eye can do that work. So there's still very high touch and highly educated, skilled labor involved in this process. And so we think from a jobs perspective, of course, you know, in the same way semiconductor factories are going to lead to a lot of economic development, uh, we're ready to put thousands of people to work building PCBs. David Schild is executive director of the Printed Circuit Board Association of America, speaking there with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, and you can also find these interviews wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, a precarious situation that contractors have found themselves in more and more. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Now, there's never a convenient time for full or even partial government shutdowns, but we've reached the beginning of the end of another fiscal year with the likelihood of a shutdown rising. So how can contractors make sure they're ready for it and minimize the damage? As always, for these kinds of questions, we turn to Larry Allen of Allen Federal. Larry, thanks so much for joining us. It's looking like a partial shutdown is more than likely, but uh, not quite sure where things currently stand. Uh, What are you hearing mostly from the folks who are on the government contracting side, what are they preparing for the worst or just this is business as usual now? Well, Eric, I wouldn't say that it's business as usual, but contractors are in a really complex time because they're simultaneously trying to grab and close last minute business before this fiscal year closes down. But in the meantime, they have to make sure that they have their in-place contracts managed properly for a potential shutdown. Uh, By the way, I do think that's going to happen. I think whether it happens on October 1st or maybe we get a short-term CR that takes us into October and then a shutdown, one way or the other, I think the chances of that are probably better than 75%. I don't say that with happiness, by the way, but I'm just looking at the situation. And all I'm really hoping for is that if we do get one, that it's not going to be very long. But if you're a government contractor, you need to be communicating with your government contracting officers, the people that manage your contracts. You need to understand what's going to shut down on their end, whether or not you're going to get paid, whether or not expedited pay is available. Uh, and then you need to go turn around if you're a services contractor, especially and tell your service employees 
you know, what they're going to be doing while there's a shutdown. You know, they're not going to be able to volunteer business. They're not going to be able to go and work on a government site if that's something that they've been doing. Yeah, and the day-to-day operations are obviously going to be greatly affected. But I wanted to zero in on, you know, this time of year, it, it goes across the board. Everybody is busy. I mean, this is when everybody's trying to, like you said, get ready for the following year and finish up the fiscal year itself. Having, you know, this dispute occur during this time period, you know, how much more difficult does that make it for businesses that work with the government? I think it makes it very difficult, Eric, and I'll tell you why. There's been a tendency in the government market over the last couple of years to really backload uh, contract award actions. If you look at some of the awards that are made uh, the last two weeks of September, there's really a substantial amount of government business that gets done. Even in the services area, it used to be that by now most of the major service projects were locked up. And whether or not you're talking services or products, large projects are mostly locked up. But there are a lot of medium-sized and smaller pieces of business that contractors are going to be pursuing and government agencies are going to be handing out right up until midnight on September 30th, which, of course, this year is a Saturday. So happy weekend, guys. And that that's a distraction. You know, they, they want to get the business in under the line, which I totally understand. But somebody has to be figuring out what happens when the sun comes up October 1st and we don't have an appropriations. What's that going to mean for your business? What that's, what's that going to mean for your employees that right now have a charge number? And you said you were hoping and holding out the best hope that it's going to be a short one, but you never know how these things can go and how stubborn everybody can be on both sides. What should they do to potentially prepare for a longer term shutdown, but also maintain that you got to keep things going in the short term, too? So I think one of the biggest things that's important to understand, Eric, is that the shutdowns don't happen all at once. Uh, Everybody says, well, you know, we run out of money on X date and, you know, on X date, everything closes down. That's not really the case. You'll have some things that absolutely do close down as soon as the government runs out of money, but you'll also have some functions that continue on and things that have alternate sources of funding, either permanently or at least for a little while. So you could have a project or a couple of projects that are funded for the first five or six weeks or three weeks of a shutdown. But after that, you know, that money runs out and those things then have to shut down. On the other side, you can have some things that are at first deemed non-essential that shut down. But after two or three weeks, people deem them essential. Suddenly we have to go on with that function regardless. And so some projects could start back up after initially being shut down. That's extremely confusing for contractors and for government, frankly. We've already seen some government agencies kind of telegraph this, Eric, that that's you know, probably going to happen in the event that a shutdown lasts more than two weeks. So you need to really keep those communications sharp. This is not a time if you're a contractor to tell all of your contract managers and senior management people that it's a great time to go uh, take a vacation because it's not. You could find that something that is closed down suddenly has to be restarted and you have to make sure that people are available for that. Similarly, you have to be prepared to wind down operations over time that may operate for a couple of weeks, but then run out of money if this is, in fact, a protracted shutdown. 
In other news, there was an interesting maneuver by one particular contractor, and it's a big one. It's Verizon, who actually blew the whistle on themselves and said, oh, yeah, uh, there's a little bit of waste and abuse going on here and decided to come forward with it. Obviously, that's what you're supposed to do, but it seems as if maybe they may have done it out of self-interest as well. Eric, that's right. Most companies try to fly low under the radar, and they do actually, I think, try to comply with their government contract requirements. But Verizon here, I think, is notable uh, for turning themselves in and saying, hey, you know, we didn't do what we said we were going to do under this telecommunications contract. And I think that hats off to Verizon. They set a great example. And I'll tell you that for a couple of reasons. First of all, every contractor needs to be reminded that they have a mandatory disclosure clause in their contracts. So when they have credible evidence of wrongdoing, and that's the standard, then they are supposed to report it at least to the CO. And technically, the law says you're supposed to report that both to the CO and the inspector general. Of course, I would advocate any company before you make a disclosure, make sure you're working with competent outside counsel that understands government contracts Uh, on that type of disclosure. But we have to remember that you are bound by the mandatory disclosure rule. Also, by coming clean, while Verizon has to pay a fine today, they get to live to contract again another day. And that's taking the long view. You know, if you blow the whistle on yourself, you're going to end up paying a fine, but you're going to end up paying less of a fine up front and fewer legal fees because it's not going to be protracted over a number of years. But you're also likely not going to find yourself in front of a suspension or debarment official, which means that you get to maintain your participation in the federal market, not only the federal market, Eric, but also increasingly state and local government markets that look to the federal excluded parties list to see whether or not a company they want to do business with is on it. It's not all on the companies, though, right? Agencies are going to have to be proactive in in, in ensuring that their contracts are being fulfilled and that they're being used in a necessary way. What else is going on on that front, especially, you know, with a big agency like the General Services Administration? Well, I think those agencies really need to provide oversight. And, you know, you look at the GSA Office of the Inspector General in their semiannual report they come out with some real doozies. And I think, you know, a lot of times, Eric, when we talk about government contract compliance, we're talking about civil fines. And of course, there are a lot of things that happen in the civil arena, but it's not limited to that as the GSAIG's most recent semi-annual report showed. There were two cases of contractors that were convicted of criminal False Claims Act lapses. And that's a real problem. Uh, One company got itself, the owner of the company got itself himself a 30 month sentence in federal prison. So, you know, congratulations. And on top of that, got a $5 million fine. Uh, While the IG report didn't say whether or not the company was suspended or debarred, my guess, Eric, is that both the owner and the company at a minimum, found themselves on the suspended list for a period of time in separate actions. And that's important to remember, too. Both people and companies can end up on that suspended or debarred list. Larry Allen of Allen Federal, thank you as always, my friend. Eric, thank you. I wish your listeners happy selling. And you can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive.
But first, nearly five years in the making, the time has come for the catalyst to bring agencies into the digital 21st century. Agencies have about 100 actions to transform, evolve, and standardize the citizens' online experience under new guidance from the Office of Management and Budget. Claire Martirana, the Federal Chief Information Officer, tells Executive Editor Jason Miller about how the Delivering a Digital First Public Experience Guidance aims to meet the spirit and intent of the 2018-21st Century Idea Act. We are trying to think big. Since the beginning of this administration, we have been focused on making sure that we are putting our customers first and delivering for all Americans across all abilities and really trying to drive digital as the default for how we operate the government. This is a 10-year transformation framework, and it has more than 100 actions and standards to help federal agencies design, develop, and deliver modern websites and digital services that are trustworthy, accessible, easy to use. And it's really an exciting moment for us. So there are some key components that this guidance will allow the American people to do. They should know when they're interacting with an official government website. Today, it's hard. You get search results and there's hundreds, millions of search results for one question that you ask. And this will actually help all Americans with clear clarity around if they're interacting with a government website. We will also focus on getting the best answers to top questions in language that people can understand. They will be able to access government online services no matter what their ability level is. So we will be continuing to focus on Section 508 and all of the accessibility guidelines that the team has focused on for many years, but this is really going to be catalytic in improving. And then use government websites. The public should be able to use these websites on their mobile device. We need to meet them where they currently are in a way that works for them. A key part of this is this is multi-channel. Many people will be able to access these products and services through digital technology, computers, phones, et cetera. But there are still some people that are going to want and need to talk to somebody on the phone, stop in an office, and we will make sure that this is intersectional with those multi-channel experiences. So we are really helping have access to all of this. Thanks, Claire. Appreciate that explanation. Let's take a half a step back. The guidance has been in the works for several years now. Tell us a little about the goals of the guidance. We have some immediate agency and government-wide actions, top things that uh, agencies will need to do in the first 180 days of uh, this policy guidance. I say to my team all the time, you can't manage what you can't measure. So one of the top things that we'll be doing is identifying and uh, assessing top public-facing websites and digital services and for prioritization. We will be assessing common questions and top web content to make sure we eliminate duplication and that we are optimizing government content for SEO. And we will also be inventorying public-facing services and assess top tasks so that we can figure out if they can be digitized into self-service options for the public. Whenever you create a guidance like this, there's a lot that goes into it. How'd you work with agencies, the CIO council? How'd you go through the critical steps to get this out the door? 
we have coined the term, I think, human-centered policymaking, right? We have been working really closely with our agency partners, making sure we understand that each agency, they're on their own unique journey based on their technology stack, the, the types of benefits and services that they deliver. So we have been working with the multitude of agencies. And as we have some agencies that are very forward-leaning technically, they have really competent teams, and they've been on this journey for several years, many, many years. We have other agencies that are just beginning, and we are making sure that we are doing user testing, that we are gathering data that they have uh, been working on for many years, satisfaction scores, et cetera, to really assess where we can help them start on the journey or optimize the journey that they are currently on. Claire, I was reviewing the guidance and there's several different sections to it. There's a lot of pieces and parts to this memo. Let's start with the focus on analytics. What should agencies know about it? What do they have to do? Analytics are really critical for us, making sure that we can understand how users are utilizing these different digital properties, uh, you know, where we have abandoned rates, where we have um, opportunities to really deliver a, a better, more seamless uh, experience for uh, customers. Accessibility is a very large focus for us, making sure, as I said, that Section 508 accessibility standards are followed. Brand is something that is really challenging because it is very difficult if you're going on a multi-agency journey where you might have to complete tasks in two, three, four, five different agencies. It is very difficult starting at a search engine to make sure you're landing on accurate, credible, timely government content. Also very difficult when you're moving from one website to another, there's not consistent visual design. So it's really hard to understand if you're going from one trusted government website to another trusted, verified government website. So that is something that is also part of this policy framework. Content, the public shouldn't have to decipher multiple duplicate conflicting sources of content. That's our job. And we should be writing all of our content in plain language. As I mentioned, kind of intersects with brand is design. Every agency is required to use the U.S. web design system. That's not optional. That is mandatory. We need to deliver a consistent uh, look and feel to the public. And this guidance helps us with that. As I mentioned, search, we will both be optimizing for external from SEO into government, but also really important that we have consistency in our navigation on websites and that we have good quality search functionality within an agency vertical so that you're able to search within the agency website and make sure that you get that answer quickly and importantly. And I know that you have heard me say this before, but only 2% of our forms are fully digital and that is not acceptable. So we are also going to be focusing on this um, policy framework actually will help us move towards building out a pathway and frameworks, both on the acquisition and contracting side that will help us build the best quality digital experiences, including forms so that they are completely end-to-end, computer readable, and easy for um, the public to use. 
You mentioned the 10-year transformation framework, more than 100 actions. How are you breaking down those actions? How are you ensuring that this is not something agencies are going to get overwhelmed by? A couple different ways. So it, it's not only 100 um, actions, it's also standards. One of the ways that we can really drive impact in government is by having standards. And that really lifts the boats across the board. Another way that we are, are really harnessing the power of this policy is marrying it with some of the work we've already been doing with the TMF. We have funding allocated for some of this work and making sure that we are developing the standards, playbooks, and best practices that will actually bring everybody along on the journey. Claire Martorana is the Federal Chief Information Officer, and she was speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. You can find this interview along with more of Jason's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates on any government shutdown news, you can stay with federalnewsnetwork.com. Search Government Shutdown for our Government Shutdown resource page. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Tom. 